Chapter Six of Ziska by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ilianthi. Next day, the ordinary course of things was resumed at the Gezira Palace Hotel, and the delights and flirtations of the fancy ball began to vanish into what Hans Breitmann calls the Urigkeit. Men were lazier than usual and came down later to breakfast and girls looked worn and haggard with overmuch dancing. But otherwise there was no sign to indicate that the festivity of the past evening had left tracks behind, or made a lasting impression of importance on any human life. Lady Chetwynd Lyle, portly and pig-faced, sat on the terrace working at an elaborate piece of cross-stitch, talking scandal in the civilest tone imaginable, and damning all her dear friends with that peculiar air of entire politeness and good breeding which distinguishes certain ladies when they're saying nasty things about one another. Her daughters Muriel and Dolly sat dutifully near her, one reading the Daily Dial, as befitted the offspring of the editor and proprietor thereof, the other knitting. Lord Fulkwood lounged on the balustrade close by, and his lovely mother, attired in quite a charming and girlish costume of white foulard, exquisitely cut, and fitting into a waist not measuring more than twenty-two inches, reclined in a long deck-chair, looking the very pink of painted and powdered perfection. "'You are so very lenient,' Lady Chetwynd Lyle was saying, as she bent over her needlework, so very lenient, my dear Lady Falkwood, that I am afraid you do not read people's characters as correctly as I do. I have had, owing to my husband's position in journalism, a great deal of social experience, and I assure you I do not think the Princess Ziska a safe person. She may be perfectly proper, she may be, but she is not the style we are accustomed to in London." "'I should rather think not,' interrupted Lord Fulkwood hastily. "'By Jove, she wouldn't have a hair left on her head in London, don't you know?' "'What do you mean?' inquired Muriel Chetwynd Lyle, simpering. "'You really do say such funny things, Lord Fulkwood.' "'Do I?' And the young nobleman was so alarmed and embarrassed at the very idea of his ever saying funny things that he was rendered quite speechless for a moment." Anon he took heart and resumed. "'Er, uh, well, I mean that the society women would tear her to bits in no time. She'd get asked to nowhere, but she'd get blackguarded everywhere. She couldn't help herself with that face and those eyes.' His mother laughed. "'Dear Folky, you are such a naughty boy. You shouldn't make such remarks before Lady Lyle. She never says anything against anyone.' Dear Folky stared. Had he given vent to his feelings, he would have exclaimed, "'Oh, Lord, isn't the old lady a deep one?' But, as it was, he attended to his young moustache anxiously, and remained silent. Lady Chetwynd Lyle, meanwhile, flushed with annoyance. She felt that Lady Fulkwood's remark was sarcastic, but she could not very well resent it, seeing that Lady Fulkwood was a peeress of the realm, and that she herself, by the strict laws of heraldry, was truly only Dame Chetwynd Lyle, as wife of an ordinary knight, and had no business to be called her ladyship at all. I should indeed be sorry, she said primly, if I were mistaken in my private estimate of the Princess Ziska's character, 
but I must believe my own eyes and the evidence of my own senses, and surely no one can condone the extremely fast way in which she behaved with that new man, that French artist Armand Gervais, last night. Why, she danced six times with him, and she actually allowed him to walk home with her through the streets of Cairo. They went off together in their fancy dresses, just as they were. I never heard of such a thing. Oh, there was nothing remarkable at all in that, said Lord Falkwood. Everybody went about the place in fancy costume last night. I went out in my Neapolitan dress with a girl, and I met Denzil Murray coming down a street just behind here. Took him for a Florentine prince, upon my word. And I bet you Gervaise never got beyond the door of the princess's palace, for that blessed old Nubian she keeps, the chap with a face like a mummy, bangs the gate in everybody's face, and says in guttural French, La princesse ne voit personne. I've tried it. I tell you, it's no go. Well, we shall all get inside the mysterious palace next Wednesday evening, said Lady Falkwood, closing her eyes with a graceful air of languor. It will be charming, I am sure, and I dare say we shall find that there is no mystery at all about it. Two months ago, suddenly, said a smooth voice behind them, the Ziska's house or palace was uninhabited. Lady Falkwood gave a little scream and looked round. Good gracious, Dr. Dean, how you frightened me! The doctor made an apologetic bow. I am very sorry. I forgot you were so sensitive. Pray, pardon me. As I was saying, two months ago, the palace of the Princess Ziska was a deserted barrack. Formerly, so I hear, it used to be the house of some great personage, but it had been allowed to fall into decay, and nobody would rent it, even for the rush of the Kyrian season, till it was secured by the Nubian you were speaking of just now. The interesting Nubian with the face like a mummy. He took it and furnished it, and when it was ready, Madame la Princesse appeared on the scene, and has resided there ever since. I wonder what that Nubian has to do with her, said Lady Chetwynd Lyle severely. Nothing at all, replied the doctor calmly. He is the merest servant, the kind of person who is told off to attend on the women of a harem. Ah, I see you have been making inquiries concerning the princess, doctor, said Lady Falkwood with a smile. I have. And have you found out anything about her? No, that is nothing of social importance, except perhaps two items. First, that she is not a Russian. Secondly, that she has never been married. Never been married? exclaimed Lady Chetwynd Lyle. Then suddenly turning to her daughters, she said blandly, Muriel, Dolly, go into the house, my dears. It is getting rather warm for you on this terrace. I will join you in a few minutes. The girls rose obediently, with a delightfully innocent and juvenile air, and fortunately for them, did not notice the irreverent smile that played on young Lord Falkwood's face, which was immediately reflected on the artistically tinted countenance of his mother, at the manner of their dismissal. "'There is surely nothing improper in never having been married,' said Dr. Dean, with a mock serious air. "'Consider, my dear Lady Lyle, is there not something very chaste and beautiful in the aspect of an old maid. 
Lady Lyle looked up sharply. She had an idea that both she and her daughters were being quizzed, and she had some difficulty to control her rising temper. "'Then do you call the princess an old maid?' she demanded. Lady Falkwood looked amused. Her son laughed outright, but the doctor's face was perfectly composed. "'I don't know what else I can call her,' he said, with a thoughtful air. "'She is no longer in her teens, and she has too much voluptuous charm for an ingenue. Still, I admit, you would scarcely call her old, except in the parlance of the modern matrimonial market. Our present-day roués, you know, prefer their victims young, and I fancy the Princess Ziska would be too old, and perhaps too clever for most of them. Personally speaking, she does not impress me as being of any particular age, but as she is not married, and is, so to speak, a maid fully developed, I am perforce obliged to call her an old maid. She wouldn't thank you for the compliment, said Lady Lyle, with a spiteful grin. I dare say not, responded the doctor blandly, but I imagine she has very little personal vanity. Her mind is too preoccupied with something more important than the consideration of her own good looks. And what is that? inquired Lady Falkwood, with some curiosity. Ah, there is the difficulty. What is it that engrosses our fair friend more than the looking-glass? I should like to know, but I cannot find out. It is an enigma as profound as that of the Sphinx. Good morning, Monsieur Gervaise. And turning round, he addressed the artist, who just then stepped out on the terrace, carrying a paint-box and a large canvas strapped together in portable form. Are you going to sketch some picturesque corner of the city? No, replied Gervaise, listlessly raising his white sun-hat to the ladies present, with a courteous yet somewhat indifferent grace. I'm going to the Princess Ziska's. I shall probably get the whole outline of her features this morning. A full-length portrait? inquired the doctor. I fancy not. Not the first attempt, at any rate. Head and shoulders only. Do you know where her house is? asked Lord Falkwood. If you don't, I'll walk with you and show you the way. Thanks, you are very good. I shall be obliged to you. And raising his hat again, he sauntered slowly off. Young Falkwood walking with him, and chatting to him with more animation than that exhausted and somewhat vacant-minded aristocrat usually showed to anyone. It is exceedingly warm, said Lady Lyle, rising then and putting away her cross-stitch apparatus. I thought of driving to the pyramids this afternoon, but really... There is shade all the way, suggested the doctor. I said as much to a young woman this morning, who has been in the hotel for nearly two months, and hasn't seen the pyramids yet. What has she been doing with herself? asked Lady Falkwood, smiling. Dancing with officers, said Dr. Dean. How can Cheops compare with a moustached noodle in military uniform? Good-bye for the present. I'm going to hunt for Scarabai. I thought you had such a collection of them already, said Lady Lyle. So I have, but the princess had a remarkable one on last night, and I want to find another like it. It's blue, very blue, almost like a rare turquoise, and it appears it is the sign manual of the warrior Araxes, who was a kind of king in his way, or desert chief, which was about the same thing in those days. He fought for Amenhotep, 
and seemed from all accounts to be a greater man than Amenhotep himself. The Princess Ziska is a wonderful Egyptologist. I had a most interesting conversation with her last night in the supper-room. Then she is really a woman of culture and intelligence, queried Lady Lyle. The doctor smiled. I should say she would be a great deal too much for the University of Oxford, as far as Oriental learning goes, he said. She can read the Egyptian papyri, she tells me, and she can decipher anything on any of the monuments. I only wish I could persuade her to accompany me to Thebes and Karnak. Lady Falkwood unfurled her fan and swayed it to and fro with an elegant languor. How delightful that would be, she sighed. So romantic and solemn, all those dear old cities with those marvellous figures of the Egyptians carved and painted on the stones, and Rameses, dear Rameses, he really has good legs everywhere. Haven't you noticed that? So many of these ancient sculptures represent the Egyptians with such angular bodies and such frightfully thin legs, but Rameses always has good legs wherever you find him. It's so refreshing. Do make up a party, Dr. Dean. We'll all go with you, and I'm sure the Princess Ziska will be the most charming companion possible. Let us have a dahabia. I'm good for half the expenses, if you'll only arrange everything. The doctor stroked his chin and looked dubious, but he was evidently attracted by the idea. I'll see about it, he said at last. Meanwhile, I'll go and have a hunt for some traces of Amenhotep and Araxes. He strolled down the terrace, and Lady Chetwynd Lyle, turning her back on old Lady Falkwood, went after her girls, while the fascinating Falkwood herself continued to recline comfortably in her chair, and presently smiled a welcome on a youngish-looking man with a fair moustache who came forward and sat down beside her, talking to her in low, tender, and confidential tones. He was the very impecunious colonel of one of the regiments then stationed in Cairo, and as he never wasted time on sentiment, he had been lately thinking that a marriage with a widowed peeress who had twenty thousand pounds a year in her own right might not be a half-bad arrangement for him. So he determined to do the agreeable, and as he was a perfect adept in the art of making love without feeling it, he got on very well, and his prospects brightened steadily hour by hour. Meanwhile, young Falkwood was escorting Armand Gervais through several narrow by-streets, talking to him as well as he knew how, and trying in his feeble way to draw him out, in which task he met with but indifferent success. "'It must be awfully jolly, and uh, all that sort of thing, to be so famous,' he observed, glancing up at the strong, dark, brooding face above him. "'They had a picture of yours over in London once. I went to see it with my mother. It was called Le Poignard. Do you remember it?' Gervaise shrugged his shoulders carelessly. "'Yes, I remember. A poor thing at its best. It was a woman with a dagger in her hand.' "'Yes, awfully fine, don't you know?' She was a very dark woman, too dark for my taste, and she'd got a poignard clasped in her right hand. Of course she was going to murder somebody with it. That was plain enough. You meant it so, didn't you? I suppose I did. She was in a sort of eastern get-up, pursued Falkwood. One of your former studies in Egypt, perhaps. Gervais started and passed his hand across his forehead with a bewildered air. 
No, no, not a former study by any means. How could it be? This is my first visit to Egypt. I have never been here before. Haven't you? Really? Well, you'll find it awfully interesting and all that sort of thing. I don't see half as much of it as I should like. I'm a weak chap. Got something wrong with my lungs. Awful bother, but can't be helped. My mother won't let me do too much. Here we are. This is the Princess Ziska's. They were standing in a narrow street ending in a cul-de-sac, with tall houses on each side which cast long, black, melancholy shadows on the rough pavement below. A vague sense of gloom and depression stole over Gervaise as he surveyed the outside of the particular dwelling Fulkwood pointed out to him, a square palatial building which had no doubt once been magnificent in its exterior adornment, but which now, owing to long neglect, had fallen into somewhat melancholy decay. The sombre portal, fantastically ornamented with designs copied from some of the Egyptian monuments, rather resembled the gateway of a tomb than an entrance to the private residence of a beautiful living woman, and Falkwood, noting his companion's silence, added, "'Not a very cheerful corner, is it? Some of these places are regular holes, don't you know? But I dare say it's all right inside.' "'You have never been inside?' "'Never.' and Falkwood lowered his voice. Look up there. There's the beast that keeps everybody out. Gervaise followed his glance, and perceived behind the projecting carved latticework of one of the windows a dark, wrinkled face and two gleaming eyes, which, even at that distance, had, or appeared to have, a somewhat sinister expression. He's the nastiest type of Nubian I've ever seen, pursued Falkwood, "'Looks just like a galvanised corpse.' Gervaise smiled, and perceiving a long bell-handle at the gateway, pulled it sharply. In another moment the Nubian appeared, his aspect fully justifying Lord Fulkwood's description of him. The parchment-like skin on his face was yellowish-black, and wrinkled in a thousand places. His lips were of a livid blue, and were drawn up and down above and below the teeth in a kind of fixed grin, while the dense brilliance of his eyes was so fierce and fiery as to suggest those of some savage beast athirst for prey. Madame la Princesse Ziska, began Gervaise, addressing his unfascinating object with apparent indifference to his hideousness. The Nubian's grinning lips stretched themselves wider apart, as in a thick, snarling voice he demanded, "'Votre nom? Amand Gervaise. Entrez.' "'Et moi?' queried Falkwood, with a conciliatory smile. "'Non pas vous. Monsieur Amand Gervaise, seul.' Falkwood gave a resigned shrug of his shoulders. Gervaise looked round at him. Ere he crossed the threshold of the mysterious habitation, "'I'm sorry you have to walk back alone.' "'Don't mention it,' said Falkwood affably. "'You see, you have come on business. "'You're going to paint the princess's picture, "'and I dare say this blessed old rascal knows "'that I want nothing except to look at his mistress "'and wonder what she's made of.' "'What she's made of?' echoed Gervaise in surprise. "'Don't you think she's made like other women?' "'No, can't say I do.' She seems all fire and vapour and eyes in the middle, don't you know? Oh, I'm an ass, always was. 
but that's the feeling she gives me. Ta-ta! Wish you a pleasant morning. He nodded and strolled away, and Gervaise hesitated yet another moment, looking full at the Nubian, who returned him stare for stare. Maintenant, he began. Oh, oui, maintenant, echoed the Nubian. La princesse, où est-elle? La, and the Nubian pointed down a long, dark passage beyond which there seemed to be the glimmer of green palms and other foliage. Elle vous attend, Monsieur Armand Gervais, entrez, suivez. Slowly Gervais passed in, and the great tomb-like door closed upon him with a heavy clang. The whole long, bright day passed, and he did not reappear. Not a human foot crossed the lonely street, and nothing was seen there all through the warm, sunshiny hours, save the long black shadows on the pavement, which grew longer and darker as the evening fell. End of chapter 6